a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, this is Logan Anderson, your host from the Say the Damn Score studio, which is also my spare bedroom. But right now we are joined by uh, an excellent guest for today's show, Chuck Swirsky. He is the voice of the Chicago Bulls and has had a very interesting path on his way to that point in his career and chuck you've had an interesting day how are you doing right now i'm doing well thank you for having me on it's been something we've been trying to connect with for a little bit of time now and just haven't been able to make it work and what i like to do to just uh set the baseline for the podcast from the beginning is what was the first time that you were on the air and the first time that you got a radio job well, the first time I was on the air on a quote-unquote official radio station because I did um, the announcements for our school in elementary school, in junior high and high school um, at a very early age. But the first time I was on a radio station, I was in between my sixth grade and seventh grade the summer prior to my seventh grade class. In Bellevue, Washington, there was a station in Bellevue. The call letters were KFKF, and it stood for Kemper Freeman and Catherine Freeman, a husband and wife who owned the radio station in Bellevue, Washington, which is a suburb east. Now it's a major city, but at that time, it was uh, just a a suburb of Seattle. And uh, the sports director, who passed away a couple of years ago, he had been there forever. His name was Bill O'Mara. And he would do the high school game of the week. And he did a lot of sports. And I would listen as a kid because I was one of those kids that just, you know, gravitated to radio and loved sports. And uh, I remember I walked into the radio station. The station was located actually in a mall. And uh, there was a, a UPI ticker wire. And a lot of people are saying, what is that? But they can Google it. And so I walked in and I said, hey, I'd like a job. <laughs> he looked at me and said, how old are you? And I said, 12. And they said, let's think about this. Uh, but I had so much energy and enthusiasm for sports and broadcasting because this is what I wanted to do really when I was five years old. And that's a true story that they uh, allowed me to uh, – take a, um, a cloth and polish records. And if you want to Google what a record is, you can do that too. But uh, I polished records, took out the trash in the back room, uh, leading into a parking lot. And then uh, my reward was that I had to keep stats for the game of the week on Friday nights for football season and Friday nights uh, for basketball. And Bill O'Mara was kind enough um, Sometime just around maybe September, October of my seventh grade class that uh, he put me on the radio to read stats of a halftime high school football game. And that's the first time I was on a radio station. So knowing what you wanted to do since you were five, you say, and I just, it's funny you say this, we just dug through some old tapes the last time I was at my parents' house and they have this old tape that said I wanted to be a zookeeper at age five. So I clearly had no idea what was going on in my future at that point. What was it about your five-year-old self that had such a clear understanding of what you wanted to do in the future? Well, you know, it, it was something that um, you know, I remember I, I spent the night with a different family. One of my friends invited us over. And uh, my dad was not a sports fan at all. Um, He was really, really good at fixing up the house. If there was a pipe that broken or something wrong with the car, he was unbelievable. 
but he really was not a sports guy. And of course, I don't know what happened along the way, but I was. And the only thing I remember to this day is that I, I spent the night with a family and they took me to what I learned later was an American Legion game. And American Legion basically is a league that was played with um, older teenagers, high school, maybe um, maybe even early, right post high school. But all I remember is there was a bright green field, beautiful brown, oranges, dirt, clay dirt, and white uniforms with red trim. And as I'm telling you this story right now, I can still envision what that looked like in my brain. And it left an indelible mark on my soul. And I thought, this was great. This is what I want to do. And I, I saw the flight of a baseball. Then all of a sudden, it became dusk, then dark, and the lights came on, and I was sold. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Actually, the three things that I, had I not been a sportscaster, I was actually going to be a social worker or a school teacher, but those are really distant uh, because broadcasting was my number one goal. So that was the first time that you were on the radio in general. What was your first break to getting your first paid job out of college? I believe you went to Ohio. Yes, I went to Ohio University. I uh, was able to get a scholarship um, after uh, attending high school in Seattle. I got an internship, actually, um, at NBC Radio in Cleveland, and that was incredible. That was a great, great learning experience, to say the least, and I would recommend that any young person that really wants to maybe uh, have a leap into what it's all about to try and get an internship because uh, I can't begin to tell you how um, not only the experience, but also people skills, networking, all the above. But once I uh, took my internship, I graduated, I graduated early and I sent uh, letters, resumes, tapes in those days, it was tape. There was no, internet there was no it was just literally a cassette that you put in a pouch in um in an envelope and you mailed it and it got there four or five days later and then the tapes stacked up you know on someone's desk and you hope that they heard it um and in those days no one got back to you and so if you didn't hear from them you just said okay and you move on but i got a glorified internship at two places uh, W-E-R-E in Cleveland, and uh, K-I-R-O in Seattle. And they were short internships, but it was on air. And it was fill-in relief. It was weekends. It was doing a sports cast at 5 a.m. in the morning, but I didn't care. And neither should anyone, because it really didn't matter what time of the day it was getting on the air. And it was the ability to uh, write copy, to, yes, even make mistakes. And at five in the morning, I'm glad people weren't probably listening because I made a lot of mistakes. But again, they gave that uh, forum for me to broadcast. And so I, I did uh, internships in Cleveland, Seattle, and then my sports director at Cairo Radio in Seattle, his name was Pete Gross. And God rest his soul, he was one of the finest men I've ever met in the business. And there was a two-man staff, Pete Gross and Wayne Cody. These are two Seattle icons in sports radio. Pete was the voice of the Seattle Seahawks. He did Morning Drive. Wayne Cody was voice of the University of Washington. He did sideline reporting for the Seahawks. Did a lot of sports, did a talk show, very popular. I filled in for that. Uh, but Pete Gross came to me one day, and he said, you know what, Chuck, you are – a third man on a two-man staff, and I'm young, Wayne's young, and we're not going anywhere, and you need to work. He goes, I believe in you. You have a ton of potential, but you got to get out there, and you got to do it every day. You can't do it every fifth or sixth day when one of us is going on assignment or whatever. And so I got a job in Columbus, Ohio, and I was on the air five days a week, five hours a night doing sports talk. I did some color work on the Clippers network with John Gordon, who later become, 
the voice of the Minnesota Twins. And I was there for only six months before a headhunter called out of the blue and said, we need uh, an unedited tape of tonight's sports talk show. And we need you to send it to this address. I thought he was kidding. And I hung up and they called back a minute later and said, if you do that again, you will be eliminated. This is the real deal. I had no idea the radio station, had no idea the city. So I sent the tape in. A week later, I'm on a flight to Chicago interviewing for a job at WCFL. At that time, they were changing over from rock and roll to news and talk owned by broadcast system. And I got the job after the interview. They called me back four days later. And that's the start of my Chicago run. So what was going through your head after you had found out that you had actually hung up on someone who potentially wanted to hire you? Well, I, I, I thought it was a friend of mine uh, pulling a practical joke. I really did. I mean, I love WBNS in Columbus. I mean, it was, it was really my first big job where I was on the air every day and I could really kind of galvanize all the things that I had learned uh, from day one to put my heart and soul into that talk show and also going into the booth for a triple a ball club, the Clippers who were very, very good uh, that season um, and meeting people from Ohio state and really developing a foundation for networking. Um, but having said that, um, you know, when, when someone calls out of the blue and the, the, the last thing, when I picked up the phone that night, because I remember we were on the air from 7 to 11, sometimes 7 to 12, and they called at 6.20. Now, I'm 40 minutes away from doing a show, and I thought it was somebody playing, that, you know, just, hey, listen, uh, we need an unedited tape tonight. We're going to give you the address. Okay, fine. You know what? I thought it was a friend of mine. Uh, in fact, as, as I'm speaking to you right now, I can tell you who it was. His first name's Tim, and he's out in L.A. now. Uh, but I thought it was him disguising his voice. So I'm glad I'm glad things worked out because you never know what would have happened or not happened. I want to backtrack a little bit farther and working for somebody who I, I see it in my experience, very unusual that someone would say, you need to get out of here. You're you need to grow into your career. Generally, uh, in my experience, the experiences that I've heard about from my network is that they will do whatever they can to keep you in that situation. How important was it for your career development to work for someone like that early? That's a great question. Well, he here's the thing. I, uh, I love Seattle. That's my home. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's Seattle is Seattle. And I mean, you know, when, when you're, but I had so much respect and admiration for Pete Gross. And when he talked, I listened. And when he told me you're, you know, you've got a ton of potential, but you know, getting on the air every, you know, once a week is not going to really do you any good whatsoever long-term for your career. And uh, at first, it was hard to swallow. I'm not going to lie to you because I wanted to make Seattle my home forever. Uh, but you know what? Had it not been for some tough love where Pete just sat me down and said, here's the story. You want to stay here? Stay here. Go ahead. But you're not going to be able to get you know, and find your comfort zone. And it's going to frustrate you. And you're going to get to the point one day where you're going to look back and say, hey, you know what? I, I, I never really fully developed my skill set. So, I mean, I, I accepted for what it was. He, um, he was a big, big proponent of uh, making sure that you get out there. It's, it's almost like when uh, a ball club recalls a player from minor leagues and they know that maybe he's got potential, but they got to find out whether or not he can play. And you don't sit him. You got to you got to have him play. And if he's not going to play, he should go back to the minor leagues. So um, fortunately, Columbus. And I'm not saying Columbus was the minor leagues at all, because Columbus, the radio station, was first class all the way. But I'm using that as an analogy that you know what I needed to work, and I need to get after it every day. And so that was very beneficial. 
going to that from that situation where you were the third guy in a big market in Seattle, but you didn't really get the reps that you wanted, and then going to Columbus, which is, like you said, a very nice market, but it's not Chicago, and then getting thrown to the Wolves in Chicago, one of the biggest and uh, some would say harshest kind of sports talk markets uh, in the country. What was that like getting that that real life experience so early in that situation? Well, I, w- I was 25, and there was only one sports talk show in the market, and that was the show I was doing. And it was unconventional because they didn't just want the four major sports. They wanted me to talk uh, hunting, fishing. They wanted me to talk, you know, billiards. And finally, like after about five months on the air, I said, you know, okay, this is Chicago. We got to talk Bears, Cubs, Sox, Bulls, Blackhawks, Notre Dame, Big Ten. And fortunately, my boss agreed. But, I mean, I was overwhelmed. I mean, I was not ready for this size of market. I was a one-man gang. We had a low-budget radio station. Um, you know, we had some great employees. But from the get-go, I knew that this was doomed because we just didn't spend the money. And Mutual was really just trying to piecemeal things together. But what it did give me is, again, four hours a night, big market. And because if it was not for WCFL, it would not have led me to The Loop or WGN and meeting a lot of contacts. And remember, our talk show was the only game in town. So if somebody listening happened to be connected with the Cubs or Sox or Bulls or Blackhawks, they were probably listening to our show. Not probably because of me, but because it was the only vehicle where an executive, a coach, a manager could probably listen to what the fan base is saying about their particular product. And guys like Tony LaRussa, this is how it works. Tony LaRussa was a new manager in 1979 with the uh, White Sox. He, he was hired early in 79. He replaced Don Kessinger. And so he came aboard. And I took the job in August of 79. In those days, Major League Baseball games did not run three hours and 39 minutes like they do now. They were probably 215, 220. So if a game started at 7, chances are they were done by 9.30. Tony was out of there by 10.15. We were off the air at 11 o'clock. There were nights, and I am not kidding you when I say this, there were nights he came in because our studio was at Marina Towers downtown. He would come in for the last 20, 25, 30 minutes of the show and do the last half hour. Now, this is a Hall of Fame, turned out to be a Hall of Fame manager. But, I mean, he would come on the air. Jim Finks, who ran the Bears, would come on the air. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. But, the, but So that exposure really, really helped me. So working at an underfunded station that tried to piecemeal things together, generally that leads to, oh, you know, some situations that maybe you can laugh about now that maybe mortified you at the time. Uh, with equipment or just with uh, trying to just weird things happening, strange remotes. Uh, Do you have any of those that you could share? Absolutely. I had to do because the newsroom would, you know, call it, call it a night at six o'clock. So no one was there. And so um, our, uh, my, my dear friend, the late Ed Murphy, who passed away a year ago and I loved Ed very, very much. My first engineer in Chicago, he was the board op. In fact, the first night we were on the air, um, you know, about a half hour before the show, he drops this, this tablet of paper in front of me, blank paper. And I said, Ed, what's this? He goes, it's your radio log. I said, but it's empty. He goes, correct. You just joined the lowest rated 50,000 watt station in American broadcast history. We don't have any listeners. We don't have any commercials. So I... <laughs> He played PSAs, public service announcements, over and over and over just so I could get a break and hit the men's room or get, grab, you know, a bottle of water or whatever. Um, but, I mean, it was, you know, I, I mean, the newsroom, we didn't have a newsroom after 6 o'clock. Ed would go to the wire, you know, cut it, you know, and give me, like, you know, the headlines. 
I didn't know names of communities. I didn't know aldermen's names. I screwed up Ed Verdoliak's name about a million times. I called Winnetka, Winnetka. I did everything. I mean, you name it, I did it. And um, I mean, little things like that. I, I mean, it was just, you can look back now and laugh and you think, oh my gosh, you know, I survived that. But at the time, trust me, I was a nervous wreck. I could only imagine being handed a blank log. Did that scare you as far as job security? Absolutely. None of us, I mean, we were not on contract. We raced down. I'm, I'm telling you the truth now. There was a bank downstairs in the Marina Towers. As soon as we got a check, there was no such thing as direct deposit in 1979. They gave us a check every two weeks. As soon as we got the check at 2 o'clock, I raced down to the bank because I was always in the back of my mind thinking, is this going to clear? And uh, I, you know, I mean, whether or not I should have thought that way or not, that's what was in my heart. But it was an interesting experience. I was there for 13 months. And then the loop uh, that was the number one station in Chicago it was a rock and roll station. And they had Steve Dahl, Gary Meyer, who were number one in the country in Morning Drive. And, uh, you know, they, they pushed the envelope uh, a lot. And the general manager was looking for a sports person. And he called me up out of the blue again, said, I want to see you. And we talked. And um, he said, you know, I want you to do a split shift. And so my first sports cast was at six. My last one was nine. I had to be back. My first sports cast in afternoon drive was 4.30, and my last was 7. And in between, there were probably moments where I would grab the bus, grab some sleep. But, you know, in Chicago, there's always something going on. There was a Cubs game. There was a press conference. And, again, I was a one-man gang. And, um, you know, that really started the advent of, me coming to the boss and saying, can I get in an intern? And so my boss said, what are we paying them? And I said, well, how about this? We don't pay them, but we give them a monthly CTA pass. And at that time it was like $40 for the whole month. And, um, but we got kids that were going to Loyola, uh, and other places. And it was great experience for them, but, I mean, it, and, you know, one thing led to the next from the loop. I went to GN, and, I mean, I think that was probably, without question, the biggest break of my life going to GN. Doing a little bit of preparation before uh, this conversation, I read that you have your philosophy doing a sports talk show, which a lot of people who do play-by-play also do a sports talk show, was to stick purely with sports, and you didn't go to the – you know, the kind of lewd sexual innuendo jokes, the guy talk, so to speak, the kind of living on the edge. What was it about you? I guess, how did you develop that philosophy? Well, you know what? I mean, I grew up uh, in a very disciplined home. Uh, you know, my uh, grew up in a very Catholic environment. Uh, my father was a decorated United States Naval officer. And... Um, you know, I was, it was, it was pretty much, you know, I mean, cut and dry black and white. It was, you know, when, when he said dinners at six, you were at the table at five forty-five. but if you walked in at six Oh one, you weren't eating that night, go straight to your room, go straight to your room. <laughs> okay. You know, that was it. I mean, that's the way my world worked. Uh, and so I, you know, I value, um, I value, um, kindness, selflessness, integrity, character, uh, compassion, forgiveness, all the principles and values. And I try and always walk in another person's shoes. And I felt that there is no way I was going to downgrade a guest. You can challenge a guest, but you do it in a respectful manner. And the other thing is that I wasn't going to go to sexual innuendos. And I had, never have, never will. And there are certain things I don't like about sports talk. In fact, I don't really listen to sports talk radio anymore. And that's the truth. I do not listen to sports talk radio for a lot of reasons. 
But um, but when I did sports talk radio, I made sure to stick with what got me there, and that was sports, entertainment, passion, enthusiasm. And remember, when a guest joins you, he is a guest, period, capital G. So now where you said that getting the job at WGN was your first really, really big break, what happened and what connection or relationship had you made that made something like that possible? Because generally those are at that level more of a, obviously you have to have a lot of talent, but it turns into a who you know type of situation. Well, uh, I didn't know anyone at WGN at all. WGN radio was not really, I, I mean, I really didn't listen to the radio station, to be honest with you, because I was 27 and yeah, I was in a rock and roll format. I, I fit that demographic. Um, and late 1981, um, again, I get a phone call out of the blue. And it's from Dan Fabian, who was the program director at the time, later became the GM of the radio station. And he said, are you under contract? And they said, yes. And he goes, for how long? And they said, I have another year and a half. He goes, that's too bad because we're interested in you. And I said, well, I said, I don't know what you have in mind, but if you talk to my GM, maybe you guys could work something out. He goes, well, we really don't like to do that, uh, but you know, we'll see. He goes, are you, are you interested? And I said, well, it depends on what is happening. I said, you know, if this is a non on air job, I'm not interested. And he goes, well, some of this is non on air. We're thinking about doing a sports talk show and we want you to produce it. We want you to be a big part of it, but Jack Brickhouse is going to anchor it. Well, obviously I heard of Jack Brickhouse and I respect him and love Jack. And, um, and I said, boy, that sounds intriguing. So they got permission from WLUP at the loop to uh, talk to me. And in late 81, I agreed to join WGN and I waited, I think a month, I think I joined in February of 82, but we agreed in 81 and uh, again, completely out of the blue. And, but this time, when Dan Fabian called, I didn't hang up because I had learned my lesson from WBNS and WCFL. I was just, I, I I picked up quickly and learned that you don't make the same mistake twice. <laughs> so at this point, just looking through your your list of all the jobs you had, it seemed like this was when a lot of doors started to open as far as play-by-play and pregame and post-game show hosting. I know, I believe you worked with the Bears, the Cubs, DePaul University around this time. Am I correct yep. on my timeline? How did those opportunities come about? Well, what happened is that uh, when I was at WCFL, um, they actually picked up the rights for the Chicago Sting. Uh, at that time, there was a league called the North American Soccer League, and it did very, very well for a window of time. And then whether it was attendance, whether they really didn't get the chunk of TV revenue they were hoping to get, um, you know, there were a lot of great international stars, but they lacked that one big time American star. Pele came to the Cosmos in the late seventies. Uh, Giorgio Canalia went to the Cosmos. The Cosmos were like the Yankees of the North American soccer league. And the sting actually did a fabulous job with uh, attendance at the old Comiskey Park and at Wrigley Field and also Soldier Field, but they just couldn't sustain it. But I did their play-by-play. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was at uh, the Loop, uh, Tommy Edwards, the longtime public address announcer, who's now back doing PA for the Bulls, but he left to work in Boston, and they had an opening. And we had a tryout, and there were a number of candidates, and they named me to do the PA for the Bulls. And because of that, I was able to meet a lot of different people. So when the transition period of time came to join GN, um, one thing led to the next. And I was able to do play-by-play for DePaul. And I did pre half and post on the Bears Network when we acquired the rights. I did pre and post Cubs radio. 
Um, I did TV Northwestern football, some basketball, and it was one thing after another, and it happened very, very quickly. Um, and uh, something that I never took for granted, but looking back and I look at that menu of, uh, responsibilities that I had at that point in time, um, I can honestly say that, you know, it was, it was incredible. It was a great experience knowing that every day you were going to do pre and post on the Cubs network and then the bears pre half and post. And you were also going to do play-by-play because DePaul at that time was a major, major player in Division One hoops. This isn't the DePaul of the last 10, 15 years. This DePaul team was ranked number one in the country year after year after year. And to call games, whether it was Mark Aguirre, Terry Cummings, Rod Strickland, Dallas Gamagees, Kevin Edwards, Tyrone Corbin, the list could go on and on and on. Uh, it, was, it was fabulous. So doing pre and post game for the Chicago Cubs means that you obviously worked with Harry Carey, one of the legends in yes. play by play, but it also was very had a lot of character to him. At least that's obviously I don't know him, you do, but I know the perception of him. Give us some Harry Carey stories and let us know what it was like working with a legend like that. Well, there were days when you know you had to, you know, I mean, you asked the question, I'm going to give you an answer. I, Harry always came prepared and that's something I will always remember, you know, because what, what gets lost because Harry was Harry and Harry's gregarious and Harry would talk about a lot of things. But the truth of the matter is Harry loved baseball and he did his homework. So if, for example, the Padres had called up a triple a player, he was on top of it. And so this notion that Harry would just show up with a six pack and, you know, would really just, you know, Hey, let me hear you. Here's a guy. I've never heard of him. No, that's not true. He, he, he knew his baseball really, really well. Uh, I think the greatest sportscaster, by the way, the city has ever seen was Jack Brickhouse. And, you know, Harry, Harry was very fortunate because Harry came at a time when the Cubs had success at 84 89 and you know harry changed his style too when harry was doing games with jimmy pearsall he was extremely um very very open um and pushed the envelope and crossed the line we all know that you know it's been well documented but with the cubs he did not do that at all and i think harry seized the moment from a popularity standpoint he seized the moment from a business standpoint And I think he kind of, you know, the light bulb went on saying, hey, you know what? I really, if if I play this right and don't go down that path as I did with the White Sox, I can really, really make a ton of money and put me at the top of the baseball world broadcasting because here I am on a superstation, WGN, every day. And, you know, it was, a, it was a perfect storm for Harry Carey when he joined the Cubs. What did you learn that made you better by working with him? What did I learn? I learned to stay out of the way some days. <laughs> I mean, you know, Harry, Harry if, if, if you knew that Harry was not having a good day at the office or something was bothering him, you had to let him go. Um, and there were a lot of those days, but there were some, uh, but you know, I mean, Harry, you know, you, you always had to keep in mind that Harry was the star and I never, ever, ever forgot that, nor did, was I even remotely in the same breath because I was not, I knew my place. I knew my role. I stayed in my lane, but, um, you know, Harry, uh, the fans love Harry because Harry's uh, personality and his effervescence uh, style and his mannerisms uh, really, you know, hit a lightning rod and touched the lives of so many fans. And as I told you, I mean, you know, the, the stars aligned for Harry with the Cubs. They were winning. They were competitive more so obviously than, you know, in, in a lot of years, but they would tease and they would, you know, kind of like, 
um, you know, have a, have a good season, 84, great start in 85 pitchers went down, things went downhill, 89, they win. And then, you know, they have a little success early nineties. Harry, unfortunately passes away, uh, you know, in the late nineties, but the bottom line is that, you know, Harry, Harry owned this town, make no mistake about it. Harry owned this town. He was more popular than any cub player more popular than grace more popular than maddox more popular than Sutcliffe. you could go right and the players knew that and the players were great and so i mean harry to me during that window when he was voiced the cubs probably without any question the number one sports personality in chicago even more so than ditka so after that your next move was to go to Michigan and take the University of Michigan job. Obviously, that's leaving your comfort zone. You had been in Chicago for a long time at that point. Uh, how did that decision come around, and uh, what led to it? Okay, well, uh, let's turn the clock back a little bit and go to um, spring of 94. And... Um, and at that time, we were having very difficult negotiations with the DePaul Athletic Director, Bill Bradshaw, uh, for, uh, to extend the radio rights. We had one year left. And Dan Fabian called me in and said, I want to let you know, I, we're, we're going in another direction. We, we're, this is not happening, and we're going to take Northwestern. They've got a guy, Dave Ennett, who I love. I brought Dave you know, back to... Chicago from Washington, D.C., where he was doing sports. And he was on the Tribune radio staff and GN as well. And I got that. I mean, Dave is a fantastic broadcaster. He is an awesome human being. And I got that. There was no competitive backstabbing whatsoever. I have total respect for Dave. But I also know that he is Northwestern. And just like probably people align me with the poll, he was Northwestern. I got all that. So I said, where's my career going? And Dan told me, you can stay here forever. You're locked long-term. But he goes, if you want to do play-by-play, I'd understand. Well, one of the people that I've met, and I actually I met him when I was uh, 12 years old, Ernie Harwell, the legendary voice of the Tigers, one of the iconic figures in the history of baseball, he was a very dear friend of mine and out of the blue, he calls me and says, Michigan has an opening. And I said, what? And he goes, Michigan has an opening. They they're looking for a guy to do basketball, guy to do pre app and post um, uh, football and the radio station. WJR is looking for a sports guy. Are you interested? And the first thing I thought of is, other than the Fab Five, I thought Detroit. Wow, <laughs> with this showing no disrespect for Detroit, but I mean it's not Chicago, and at that time Detroit was really, really struggling as a city. And I thought I don't know if I can bring myself to this, but I went up there and I talked to the boss, Bill Boyce at WJR. Loved the guy, absolutely loved the guy, and thought you know what, uh, I was married kids, the whole bit, we can find a place in Ann Arbor. It's a 45-minute ride into downtown Detroit, but if I'm going to spend a lot of time at Michigan, then I'm going to live here. And it was probably from the standpoint of just enjoying a collegiate environment, going to the big house every Saturday, doing games at Chrysler Arena, opening myself up to a new world a Big Ten. I mean, DePaul played a couple Big Ten opponents, but nothing like this. And the competitive nature of, of the Big Ten, where Michigan, Michigan State, Michigan, Indiana, I mean, you can go right down the list when Penn State joined the conference. It was big time. And I'm not going to lie to you, it was big time. Next to a professional league, Michigan was right there on the cusp as far as the identity, exposure, and you had, when you walked into a Big Ten arena doing basketball, you felt, or in the big house, you felt this was 
you were at the top of your game. And I felt that way. And it was great. And the coaches were great. Lloyd Carr was incredible to my children. Steve Fisher, the best, awesome guy. And just being around the maize and blue to this day, I didn't go there, but to this day, I will not miss a Michigan football game on Saturdays. I turn off my phone and I am glued to Michigan because the four years they won the championship in 97, they shared it with Nebraska, but I love the four years I spent at the university of Michigan. And the only reason I left was the NBA knocked on the door. Had the NBA knocked, not been there, I probably can honestly say I would probably still be at the University of Michigan. So, so what, being part of the coverage team for that national championship, and full disclosure, I'm a Nebraska native. I'm staring at a Nebraska calendar in front of my face and wearing a Nebraska shirt right now. So that was not one of my uh, favorite uh, favorite teams in the world. But what was it like covering that team with I think Woodson was on that team, and Tom Brady yep. was the backup quarterback. Well, I mean, Brady was an afterthought. He was not even the second-string quarterback. Um, you know, the, the, that year was so neat because these players, I mean, listen, they had great players, don't get me wrong, and Lloyd Carr was just developing as a head coach. Charles Woodson had the greatest year I've ever seen a collegiate athlete. Uh, he did everything, defense, offense, special teams. I mean, he was like the Heisman Trophy winner. When he won the Heisman Trophy, it, it didn't surprise me. I know a lot of people were thinking, you know, Peyton Manning, but to me it was all about Woodson. And, um, I mean, he, he was just incredible. And the 97 football season, remember also during that four years I was there, Michigan won the NCAA hockey title. And Michigan won the NIT for what it's worth. But uh, the basketball team, as you know, um, had a major NCAA investigation, uh, later went on probation. Uh, the records of a number of players, including the late Robert Tractor Trailer, bless his soul, have been erased from the books as well as you know, some Fab Five uh, years. But uh, it was I, I, you know, when I look back at my career and, and I look back on those four years doing Michigan, I wouldn't trade those four years for anything in the world because of just the exposure, but also the campus. And, um, you know, my color analyst was Rob Palinka. And Rob was, had just graduated as an undergrad from Michigan where he was on the basketball team. He was going to law school and he was my color radio analyst. And he's now the GM of the Lakers. He was an agent, a great agent for many, many superstars, including, you know, uh, Kobe Bryant. But that that four years at Michigan, that was we we got a lot in there for four years with a lot of things. After that, you made the jump to the NBA as the voice of the Toronto Raptors. Again, what was the the pathway that led you to the professional level for the first time? Uh, well, the, uh, the Raptors had an opening and, um, someone from, um, uh, marketing, um, uh, heard one of our broadcasts, WJR Detroit, of course, Detroit and Toronto were very close, uh, in proximity and someone heard a broadcast and someone contacted the radio station and the news station that carried the rights, um, the uh, program director, Nelson Millman, um, reached out. We reached back. We started having dialogue. I didn't know much about Toronto other than visiting there when I was doing play-by-play for the soccer team, the Sting, when they would play Toronto. Uh, but, um, you know, they were going into their third year as a franchise. They had just drafted Vince Carter. and. I mean, it was like, wow, okay. And I went for an interview. They interviewed a few more after myself. I didn't know whether or not I was going to get it or not. It was intriguing. The idea of doing NBA, something I always wanted to do. That was my life goal from day one growing up in Seattle. Um, But I thought, you know what, if it doesn't happen, I've got the University of Michigan. So 
it was a win-win. Dear, maybe you had these before that time. I guess I don't know that for certainty, but you had a couple of catchphrases that you used in Toronto, salami and cheese and onions, baby onions. Where did you come up with those? And what are your thoughts kind of on catchphrases and when they should be used and when they shouldn't? Well, I'm not a big fan of catchphrases, but I'm sounding like a hypocrite now, but I did use them. The salami and cheese thing, I got a, a letter from a fan and it was a letter, not an email. And he was saying, you know, I'm glued to the set. I watched the broadcast. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to go make myself a sandwich. So when you think the Raptors are about to win the game, uh, can you just you know, do, give me a little shout out? And by the way, I love salami and cheese. So a couple games later, Raptors are winning by eight with about 32 seconds to go. And so I said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And so all of a sudden, like, you know, our, our, the Raptors media relations department, they're getting these emails saying, what's that? So I said, ah, never mind. I, no, they said, no, people will like do it again. So I did it again. Then all of a sudden it just caught fire and we had t-shirts we have a local pizza company do a salami and cheese pizza. And so it was, it was kind of neat. I'm not going to lie to you. It was, I mean, I never expected it, but it was really, really neat. Was the it? onions, baby onions thing, you know, Bill Raftery gets credit for onions. Truth of the matter is it was Ray Meyer and Ray. Uh, I heard him use it at a clinic. And I had no idea, and we don't need to go into specific detail about onions, but I, I had no idea what that meant. And he explained it to me, and I said, okay. And so when Bill Raftery was using it on the air, of course, it connected. But uh, so I took, whether it was Ray Meyer, Raftery, whomever, and I went onions, baby onions. So um, it's not just onions. I uh, I went, you know, like uh, onions, baby onions, meaning wow. So, but that's it. I mean, it was nothing. I mean, it um, that caught on as well. But for the most part, I'm not into preconceived um, and where you go into a broadcast with an idea about what you're going to say. Because if you do that, you're setting yourself up for failure because you're more concerned about getting it right um, regarding the phrase at the end of a big game or a championship, then taking into account the essence of the game. And I'm not sure you're following me, but all I can tell you is I think you've got to let the game happen naturally. How was that salami and cheese pizza? It was great. Pizza, pizza. I'll tell you what, it was actually, it was really, really good. Um, and, uh, boy, you know, I mean, it was just, that was that, that period of time with the Raptors, uh, we went through a lot. We had some good years. We had some not so good years, but the fan base was fantastic. I mean, the fan base never, ever turned their back on the Raptors and the, um, you know, the foundation of the Raptor fan uh, and they've had some really, really good seasons of late. But when I was there, we had some really, really bad seasons. <laughs> but you know, you can, you know, it helps you as a broadcaster because you know life is an all full of championships. I mean, Tim Roy of Golden State, you know, John Michael of Cleveland. I mean, look at this. Joe Tate was the voice of the Cavaliers for thirty years. Thirty, okay, and he retires, and guess what happens? They win a championship, an NBA championship. They're going to finals. Timing's everything. So, I mean, there's we're the broadcasters. We have no control, none, over who wins and who loses. None. I know some fans think that we we probably have a little bit more clout and power, but we do not. We are just the messenger. So I hope people understand that. Being international technically, and I believe you have dual citizenship, you were there long enough. Was there any 
travel challenges or challenges of any sorts of having to go back and forth across borders as frequently as you did? Uh, no, because we flew charter. Um, now, when I was flying commercial, of course, you, know, you go through the scrutiny of pass, passports and whatnot. 9-11 changed a lot. Um, so I, I totally get it. But um, no, when, when we're, you know, there were times when it was an inconvenience for customs. Uh, if they were late, we had to wait on the plane and the players would get, as all of us would be, a little bit anxious just to get off a plane. Um, there were other times when customs, uh, the, the folks were delayed and they didn't arrive right on time. So we had to wait. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, if that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you that on that particular day, you probably had a pretty good day. So now your point, uh, we're just up to where you about made the jump to the Chicago Bulls after the Raptors. And again, I, I just love hearing the stories of how all these steps take place. What happened that got you with back to Chicago and with the Bulls? Well, we have to back up again uh, to 2000, 2005, 2006, and the Sonics had an opening. And I was contacted by the Sonics, and they said, you know, we're trying to get as many tapes as we can. We know you're from the area. I was so stoked and I did not want to leave Toronto, but if there was one place that I thought could be the best would be Seattle because it's my hometown. My sister lives in Seattle. The other lives in Portland. My parents both deceased are buried in Seattle. I have a lot of friends and it would have been great. And I remember the day I found out that I did not get the job. I came in, it was the final two, and I didn't get it. Dave Locke, who is doing now Utah, but he was doing the pre-half and post, and he got the job, and I understand it in-house the whole bit, but I was crushed. And I, 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 was, I remember I was in church, and I, my phone was on vibrate, and I saw 206, and I stepped outside, and they told me I didn't get it. And my knees buckled. I wanted that job so badly. And so fast forward a year and it's 2006, 2007. And the Sonics have another opening. Dave Locke, one and done. And the Sonics call again. And they said, hey, you know what? Second time's the charm. We have to interview people, but you are number one choice. We, we, we need you to fly here. And I said, I need assurances. Are you putting a shovel in the ground or where are we at with Oklahoma city? Cause there were all kinds of rumors. And they said, honestly, we don't know. And my family was very young at the time with the kids. And I thought, so I'm going to have them leave Toronto, move to Seattle for a year and then turn around and go to Oklahoma city three three schools in three years. I couldn't do that to him. So I said, this might be the dumbest thing I've ever done, but I can't, I'm not going to Seattle for an interview. I can't do it. I, I just couldn't put that uh, in my heart, my soul to do that to my children with three different schools in three years. If Seattle was going to relocate to Oklahoma city, which I thought they would. And and now, had there been a shovel in the ground for a building in Seattle, I would be with the Sonics right now. But God has a way of working things uh, to his glory. And so I turned the job down. And next thing I know, uh, I'm doing the uh, Raptors for one more year. And uh, then in, uh, we played Orlando in the playoffs. And... Um, we finished game five in Orlando on a Monday. And that Wednesday, I get a call from the Raptors saying the Chicago Bulls want to talk to you about a job. So when you went to Chicago, having that familiarity with it, how important was that as far as jumping right back into things? Oh, well, I knew the city. And of course, because the Raptors had played the Bulls, I was very familiar with you know, the Bulls organization. There were a number of people still with the organization from the time. I was even in Chicago from 
79 to 94. Um, and then, of course, um, the four years at Michigan, I kind of got away from the NBA because I was so focused on the Big Ten. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, the opportunity to come back to Chicago was something where I left TV for radio, took a pay cut. That's okay, I guess, because it was Chicago and it's the Bulls. And there are certain brands and certain franchises where you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, there's no possible way I can turn down the Chicago Bulls. And so I gladly accepted it and going on our 10th year next season. You work with Bill Wennington as your analyst, I believe, if I'm wrong, call me out on it by all means. But I read an article that said you felt like when you started working with him that you had been forever. Yes. What is um, what is the hardest part with having to get to know a new analyst, and what are the keys to working with an analyst successfully at that level? Well, number one, uh, you know, when you chemistry is important, likability is important, personality, the configuration of of two human beings getting together and hoping that both are selfless. Because if you have a broadcast where it's top heavy or you have a pair and one wants to make sure to keep the other one in place, you're not going to win. You have to check your egos at the door. You have to respect, in this case, I love Bill, and you have to respect their knowledge, their capacity to uh, enunciate and communicate their uh, views uh, during the game. And sometimes it works for people. Sometimes it doesn't, you can't force feed it. And fortunately for Bill and myself, the chemistry clicked from day one. Have you ever had to work with an analyst where the chemistry didn't click? And how did you work through that? Yes. I won't get into detail about who it was, but it's tough. It's very, very difficult. But what you do is you look for one, one element that you feel you can really lock in and meet them at their level. And if you do that, then I think while it probably isn't the greatest broadcast in the world and probably has a few red flags, the truth of the matter is that as a play-by-play announcer, it's up to you to drive the ship and to make sure that you find the mojo in your analyst. And once you detect that, to allow them to elaborate with what they do best. Because if, it, if it's, if it's a, a square peg in a round hole, you are in big, big trouble. It's just not going to work. It's going to be artificial. And then the, the, the quality of the broadcast is horrible. I watched a couple videos, uh, instructional type videos that you did for the Sports Talent Association of America. And one of the things that you were very, very passionate about was staying true to yourself during a broadcast. And of course you want to learn from other people. How do you define staying true to yourself? Well, I I mean, you, you can't be someone you're not. And, um, I mean, you can take little things here and there for other broadcasters. We all do it. I get that. But I think also once the broadcast starts, you've got to always respect the integrity of the, of the broadcast, integrity of the game, and, and not allow yourself to become a fan where your emotions get the best of being a broadcaster, reporting what you see in front of yourself. I mean, on a big play, we all go bananas. That's fine. I get that. You should. But I'm talking about uh, not becoming someone that you are not wired. My wire is this. I'm very enthusiastic. I love the game of basketball. I am very passionate. Others, they have a different tone. Not saying one's right, one's wrong. They have a different tone. They have a different appeal. They have a different way of getting behind the wheel and making a 45-degree turn here, a 36-degree turn there. 
Um, but you can only speak for yourself and you can't allow uh, external factors to dictate how you're going to call a game. You've got to let your own trust factor in yourself um, make sure and get the most out of what that broadcast should be all about. One of the things that you're known for to young broadcasters is that you know, you're very accessible and you give back a lot to the sports casting community. I believe there was an example where where we first connected. You just said, if you're a young sportscaster and you want me to listen to your work, reach out to me on Twitter, and you followed through on that. What is it, I guess, how important is it to you to be able to give back to the upcoming sportscasters the way you do? Well, uh, here's, here's what happened to me as a kid. I remember writing letters, handwritten letters, to broadcasters in Seattle. And again, I come from a different world than the world we now live in. And I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. In fact, it's probably better today than it was when I grew up as a kid because you could really truly reach out through social media and hope that someone responds instantly. But in those days, you know, I would write a letter, my mom would over see it to make sure the punctuation was there, that, uh, you know, that it was legible, all those things. And I never got a return letter. And I promised myself that if I was ever in that position, I was going to return every letter, every phone call, now emails, texts, tweets, whatever. And because I know how important it is because I've walked in your shoes young people's shoes, where you're just looking for direction, you're looking for any advice, you're looking for nuggets of information that will help. And I've never forgotten the fact that when I was that kid writing a letter uh, at the kitchen table to, and I could tell you five names that I wrote as a kid to Seattle sportscasters and not one responded. And I'm thinking, okay, you know what? That's not going to be me. And that's where I'm at today. The other thing that you mentioned that I want to touch up on before we wrap up is that you're known for having a very, you said, enthusiastic delivery. You're known for having tons of energy, even when the team that you're covering covering is not great. How do you keep that energy up high all the time? Well, you can't allow the scoreboard to dictate your broadcast. You can't. Because if you allow that to happen, then your, your broadcast DNA is going to be right through the roof, out the window, whatever you want to describe it. Because uh, the, the game itself should be passionate. Now, when you're down by 30 and someone dunks the ball, you can't act like it's the seventh game of the NBA Finals. I understand that. I get that, and that's that's correct. You can't do that. Uh, but don't confuse energy and enthusiasm. Energy, you can always bring energy. You can bring enthusiasm. But again, when you're down by 40, you don't want to come across as somebody says, hey, down by 40, but good to have you with us. No, of course, you can't do that. Uh, but one thing you can't control is your energy. And, um, and people say, well, how do you control your energy? You control your energy by doing a lot of elements. Number one, uh, you got to take care of yourself. You got to get rest. You got to eat right. You got to make sure that you are physically and emotionally focused for a game that night. Secondly, you have to do your homework. Uh, one of the, uh, when I was in Columbus, I went to hear a, uh, uh, a jazz singer. His name was Dick Mackey. And he gave me one of the all time best lines I've ever heard. He says, Chuck, you better take care of your homework because if you don't, someone will. And I thought about that long and hard. And I thought, this guy gets it and I better get it. Um, but I never allow the broadcast, ever allow the broadcast to be dictated by a scoreboard ever. Chuck, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way for them to do that be? 
They can reach out to uh, Steve Swirsky, that's C is in Chuck or Charles or Charlie, all of the above. Steve Swirsky, S-W-I-R-S-K-Y at Bulls, B-U-L-L-S dot com. Steve Swirsky at Bulls dot com. You will get a response. I love hearing from people. They can send me links. I will review your work. And we will even speak over the phone if you give me your number. So it's all good. All right, Chuck, thanks for joining us again. We are talking with Chuck Swirsky. He is the voice of the Chicago Bulls, and we really appreciate your time coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.